Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. And today we get to gaze upon our good and beautiful God in His holy sanctuary, in His heavenly temple here in Rome, Revelation chapter 4. And so uh, I invite you to hear now the words of God. After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the throne sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." This is the word of the Lord. Now, I got to be really honest with you. I sometimes wrestle with pangs of meaninglessness, of hopelessness. I'm a pastor, right? If, If there's anybody on the earth who should know the meaning and have hope in all things, it should be me, or it should be followers of Jesus, right? And yet, even us, we feel hopelessness from time to time. We feel meaningless from time to time. We wonder, what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of what we do? And when you're feeling that way broadly about life in general, it's really hard to see the purpose and meaning behind what we do here on a Sunday morning or why we gather together. Why do we worship our God? Why do we do these things that sometimes feel empty and ritualistic? Why do they even matter And if you're someone who has struggled with meaninglessness, if you're someone who's struggled to see the hope and the purpose in things, then this might be the most important chapter in all the Bible. In fact, even apart from that, this might be one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. And I do not say that lightly. Right? Because every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Every single word of Scripture is here for our correction and for our exhortation and for our encouragement and growth. There's no one part of Scripture that really should stand out above the others. And yet, when I come to this chapter, I find in it so much meaning and hope and purpose. And I hope that by the end of this time, you will too. And so we, we jump in here, and the Apostle John is 
now kind of been taken into heaven here at the beginning of chapter 4. So we're gonna, let's rewind a little bit back to the beginning of Revelation, right? John is hanging out on the Isle of Patmos, kind of minding his own business, praying in the Spirit, and he's worshiping the Lord Jesus. He's worshiping God. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 1, this giant voice speaks to him and says, write down the things I'm going to show you. And then that voice materializes into the person of Jesus, kind of standing there in the room with John. Now, at that point, at the beginning of the revelation, John has not been taken into heaven. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't been given a vision of anything beyond earth. He's just seeing Jesus kind of standing there as a vision in front of him. But now here, after Jesus has dictated the seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor, now we read that John is in the Spirit and he's taken into heaven. And we don't know if that's a, a physical taking in or if that's kind of a spiritual rising, but, but we know that now John is getting a vision into the very throne room of God. And that's where this begins. That's where the thesis statement of Revelation is. This, this chapter serves as the centerpiece of everything that's going to happen in the next verse, in the next chapters. So as we're reading through the rest of Revelation, chapters 5 through 22, I want you to remember this chapter. Keep this vision in front of you, in your mind, as you read all of the weirdness and strange things that are to come. Because this chapter sets us up for the very centerpiece of the book of Revelation. This throne room scene where we see God on his throne is a reminder through all the stuff that is to come that this is still a God-centered book. Now there are a lot of people out there, a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers, a lot of pastors, a lot of people writing popular books who write in such a way that the Revelation is human-centered. That this book is really about us and what happens to us and what's to happen in the future and future events. And they forget that the center of the book of Revelation is God himself. In fact, the center of all scripture is God himself. God is the center of everything that we are to be about and is the center of everything that the scripture is about. And he's the center of the Revelation. Never forget that. It's only when we remember that God is the center of this vision and that God on his throne is the one calling all the shots in everything that is to come that we can understand the revelation the way that it was intended to be understood and that we can put things in their proper place and realize we're not the center. I am not the center. You are not the center. You, you want to know the very first step in overcoming meaninglessness and hopelessness? You want to know the very first step in overcoming the, the depression and the darkness and the meaninglessness that seems to bear in on you? It's to get the attention and focus off yourself. Get it off of me. The more that I look to myself, the more that I look inside of me, the more that I focus on me, 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 and, and my world and my needs and who I am and, and how I interact with things, the more hopeless the world becomes because I recognize I ain't all that great. The more that I get the focus off of myself and I can focus in on God, I can focus in on the one who really is calling the shots, the one who sits at the center of it all, the one who loves us, the one who cares for us, the one who has ordered our steps and ordered the history of our world. The more that I can focus in on him and off of myself, the more meaning and hope and purpose I find in not only my life, but in the world around me. 
So get the focus off of me. Get the focus where it belongs on God himself. And so that's our, that's our first step here. That's what happens with John here. He's, he's brought up, and before he's shown anything else, he is shown the throne of God. As though God is saying to John, remember this. Never forget what you see here. Don't get caught up in the minutia of everything that is to come without remembering that I am the source of it all. And so he goes up. Now, Let's take a look at what he actually sees, right? So we, he, we're told in chapter 4 here that John is taken up in heaven. He's given this vision of God. Actually, we don't even know that it's God at the beginning. He's given a vision of a throne. And he just says, someone is sitting on the throne. But I can't really tell who it is. Now we know, right, just given the, the grandeur of the situation, we know that it's God sitting on the throne. But the point of John saying someone is sitting on the throne is to say that, look, this glory, this grandeur, this beauty is so overpowering. It's so intimidating that I can't even tell who it is. I can't even distinguish the person for all of the glory that surrounds them, for all of the beauty that surrounds them. It's like looking at the sun. What you're seeing is not the the burning ball of the sun. You're seeing the light that radiates from it. You can stare at the sun and not see the sun in its details because the light that radiates from it is so powerful and so strong that it overwhelms your senses. You ever actually looked right at the sun? It's not just a visual experience, right? It's like a whole body feeling when you look right into the sun. And here John is getting this entire body experience of the glory of God, and it is so powerful and overwhelming that he can't even see the person sitting on the throne. So what's he, what's he seeing? What's this overpowering stuff? Man, we've got image after image after image after image here. He's, this guy is sitting on the throne. There's someone there, and they have the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, and they're surrounded by a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. And then we skip down to chapter, verse 5, and we read that flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder come from the throne. There are seven torches burning in front of the stone the throne. There's this big sea of glass in front of the stone. There's this sea that looks like glass in front of the stone, the throne. So, so John is overwhelmed with all of these beautiful images. That's why he uses precious stones here. He uses the image of precious stones. Now remember, he's trying to articulate something that we don't have words for. Right? You, you cannot adequately put this into words. We could read this and 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 never get the full true experience of what John was getting. He is trying his hardest with all of the skill that he has to put into words something that is entirely inexpressible. And so he's using these words to convey this picture of of image of, of beauty and of rarity. These stones aren't just something you find walking along the street. Right? It's not like you're walking down a dusty road in Galilee and, oh, I stumbled over some jasper or some carnelian. Right? These people know that these are precious and they're beautiful and they belong only to royalty. You can't get these just in an everyday walk of life. You have to trade for them. You have to have wealth to purchase them. You have to have power and authority to be able to get them. And so John is conveying to us the sense of beauty and of power and of authority of the one who sits on the throne. 
And then from the throne come waves of lightning and thunder. I mean, can you imagine this, right? You're standing in front of, you can't imagine this. You're standing in front of this throne thing and boom, boom, you know, and lightning is flashing around it and the light is just blinding you. And that's just coming from one person on the throne. God dwells in inapproachable and inexpressible splendor. You can't go near him. This is what it means by the holiness of God. What we see on display here is the very holiness of God. I'll continue to to define the word holy until my dying day because it's something we have to understand that holiness is not merely moral purity. Holiness is not some, some impossible standard or list of rules that we can't fall up to. Holiness is the presence of God. Holiness is who God is. And when John looks upon this throne, he is seeing the manifestation of God's very holiness. He is seeing who God is in all of its splendor and purity and beauty. He is seeing the holiness of God manifested, the otherness of God. And here John gets a sense of who he is in relation to this inapproachable being. That's where God dwells. That's who our God is. Now, if we leave it there, if we leave this imagery just there with the person on the throne and all of this power and authority and beauty radiating from it, we will forever be kept at a distance from our God. Right? If we keep it there, this God we can't go near. This is what it means when you can't approach the holiness of God. This is what it means that the holiness of God destroys everything that is unholy because you just can't go near it. God doesn't want to keep people at a distance. But because we are unholy, because of our natural state, because we are sinful in and of ourselves, we just can't approach him. We can't come close. And if we left the picture here, if we stop reading here, it's hopeless. It's meaningless. What purpose could there be to my life if the God who made me, who claims to love me, dwells in such inapproachable glory that to even come near it would destroy my very being? What purpose could there be to my life? What purpose could there be to this grand plan of salvation if I can't even come near my God? But we continue on, and and John sees other things around this throne that, that give us more assurance. So what does he see? First, he sees the seven lampstands, and then he sees this sea. Now, these are images brought directly from the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem had the inner court, and in, inside the Holy of Holies was, the, was the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the mercy seat. It was the place where God dwelled. It was the place where the the presence of God was most strongly felt on the earth. And from this point, from this one point on the earth, God's presence radiates out through the entire world. And so you don't enter the Holy of Holies except one day a year after a really intense bathing ritual and if you're called to be the high priest. And that's all. And even then, you wear bells around your legs, so if you fall dead while you're in there, someone can pull you out when they hear the bells stop ringing. That's how potent and powerful the presence of God is at the Ark of the Covenant in the center of the temple. But then as you move out from the temple, you have the menorah within the temple of God. The menorah is a seven-armed lampstand that burns every evening. 
According to Jewish tradition, one of the lamps stays burning 24 hours a day, and then the other six are burned in the evening. They're filled with enough oil for every single night. And so the seven-armed lampstand burns before the presence of God in the temple. And we're told in Zechariah that this, these lampstand, this seven-armed lampstand, these flames on these lampstands, they are the eyes of God. They are the place from which God looks out and, and views the world. And then further outside from, from the lampstand, in the court of the temple, you have a big basin called the sea, or the, the bronze sea. It's this big washing basin where you would come and be purified before going in to make your sacrifice. And so this, this imagery of the, the seven lamps before the throne of God blazing before him and then the crystal sea out beyond him, these are pictures of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's a reminder here that everything that we see in the temple of God in Jerusalem, everything we see in the house of God on the earth is just a copy of what's happening in the heavenly realms. This is all just a copy of what happens before the throne of God, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for all of eternity. The the sanctuary on the earth is simply a copy of the heavenly realm. And this, this is encouraging to us. If you read back in Exodus, as God is giving instructions for the creation of the temple, and then you read in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 9, where you read about how the earthly temple and tabernacle are a copy of the heavenly one. As you read this, you should be incredibly encouraged, because the temple is the place where we go to meet with God. The temple is the place where we go to be in God's presence, among God's people, to worship God and to feel his presence, to know that he's near. And to get as close as we can to him. The temple is an invitation into the presence of our holy God. The temple is an open invitation to anybody to step into the presence of this inapproachable God. And the fact that God instructed his people to make on earth a copy of what he experiences in the heavens all the time is an encouragement to us. Because it means that our good and holy God the one whose very presence would would destroy us, undiluted, invites us in. The four living creatures that we see here, the the six-winged eyes all over their bodies, one with the head of a lox, one with the head of a lion, one with the head of a man, one with the head of an eagle, they represent the four kind of kings of their category of creatures, right? So the lion is the most powerful wild animal. The ox is the most powerful domesticated animal. The Human beings are God's sub-regions. We are the ones who are, are meant to rule over creation. And the eagle represents the power of the air, the, the king of the, of the birds and of the wild beasts. And so when we come here and we see these living creatures that represent the, the four heads of their kind, and then we see that they're covered with eyes all over, they can see everything. Right? They, they, like God, can see everywhere and at all times and all places. And they're covered with six wings. Now, if we go back to the book of Isaiah, to when God calls the prophet Isaiah to follow him, Isaiah has a vision of the throne of God, a lot like this one. And there we see seraphim on either side of God, or the cherubim on either side of God, and they have six wings. They have two wings with which they fly, they have two with which they cover their face to shield them from God's glory, and they have two that cover their feet and their legs to, again, shield them from God's glory. 
And so that's, what, that's the imagery that's being brought up here. We also see this in Ezekiel, in the throne room scene in Ezekiel chapter 1, where we see it's one creature with four heads, but an ox, a lion, an eagle, and a human. Here in Revelation, it's four different creatures with the heads, but very much the same idea, the same concept, that God is surrounded by these representatives of his creation representatives of all the created beings that he's ever made in close, intimate relationship to his throne. That is, God wants his creation near him. He wants his creation there with him. He wants all the things that he's made. He doesn't want them at a distance. He doesn't want to keep us at arm's length. He doesn't want to bar us from entry into his throne room. He wants his creation there with him and chooses to have his throne surrounded by these creatures, by these angelic beings who represent his creation. And then further, he's got 24 thrones around that. So you've got the throne of God, the seven lamps, you've got the sea. Around that, you have these four living creatures. And then in a broader circle around that, you've got 24 other thrones. 24 probably angelic beings, but that now represent the people of God. You've got 12 apostles, the the new church of God, the new Israel, the fathers of Israel. And you've got the 12 patriarchs of Israel from old representing the 24 elders of the entire people of God throughout history. Now, these aren't actually the apostles and the patriarchs that are surrounded there. These are probably angelic beings, just like those those four living creatures that are around the throne. But they represent here the people of God on the earth. And so all of this comes together in an encouragement to us to say, yes, God dwells in inexpressible glory. Yes, God dwells in inapproachable light and beauty. And yet God, in all of his self-sufficiency, as much as God is completely content in and of himself, needs nothing else, needs no one else, wants his people with him. And isn't that an encouragement to us? Right? Isn't that an encouragement? This is what parent love is. Parent love is, I don't need you, but I want you. I mean, I mean, really, who here needs a kid? Right? Children, we love you. We love you a lot, but you are a drain on us. You are. I mean, you take resources. You take time. It's tiring dealing with you. But you know what? We wanted you, and we still want you. As frustrating as you can be, and as much as of a difficulty as you can occasionally be, we had you because we wanted you, and we still do. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. God looks at us. God, God comes to us and says, I don't need you. God, God to, these, to these angelic beings, these beings that if you saw them in person would make you pee your pants, God looks at them and says, I don't need you, but I want you. I want you around my throne. And he looks to the people of God, the people he adopted, and, and all you have to do is read like six pages of the Bible to understand that we are a drain on God. I mean, I know that's not a real right expression, right? God doesn't lose energy. God is perfect and complete, but But yet God has to deal with us patiently. He has to deal in forbearance with us because we test God all the time. 
with our disobedience and with our running around. We are petulant children before our Father God, and yet God looks at us and says, I want you. And he never said that more clearly than he did in the life and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God came to us when we were his enemies, when we had said no to him, when we had turned our backs on him and said, I love you enough to become one of you. God doesn't need us in any way. And he doesn't need these people who surround his throne. He doesn't need these creatures that surround his throne. But he wants them there. God surrounds himself with wise counselors. Surrounds himself with his creation and his people because he wants us. This is, this is amazing. And in return, in response then, these creatures They never stop singing to the Lord, holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. They never stop. And then we go on, and and verse 9 is kind of weird because it starts out, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne. Now, when is that whenever? All the time. It never stops. Right? This isn't like a, a cyclical thing where they're like, okay, I, I gave you 30 minutes, Lord. Now I get 30 minutes to myself. Okay, 30 minutes to you, 30 minutes to me. Right? They don't do what we do where we're like, okay, an hour and a half on Sunday, God, maybe an hour on Wednesday night, and then the rest of the time is for me. These creatures are worshiping God all the time. They never, ever stop. Ceaselessly, day and night, they sing praises. And whenever they do that, then the 24 elders around, you remember their crowns they have on their heads? Right? They take off their crown and they cast them before God. They cast them before the king. They're saying, our lives are not our own. Our authority is not our own. Our glory is not our own. Everything that we have is borrowed from God. Everything that we are is because of God, the one on the throne, the one who made us, the one who created us. So the four living creatures, worshiping day and night, singing praises to God, worshiping him constantly, the 24 elders laying down their crowns all the time, constantly submitting themselves to the authority of God, are doing the exact opposite of what we do so often, where we compartmentalize God and we give him pieces of our lives, but we want to keep our crowns. We want to hold on to our authority. We want to hold on to our our self-direction. We want to hold on to to all of the things that we think we've got for ourselves, that we think we've built for ourselves. And we don't want to lay down those crowns and recognize that everything we have is a gift from the hand of our good and giving God. And whatever authority, whatever glory we have, whatever gifts we have, come solely from Him. You want to overcome meaninglessness and hopelessness in your life? You want to overcome those feelings of of purposelessness and of wandering? Lay down your crown before the king. Live a life that is 24-7 worship of your God and lay down your crown. Recognize that he is the source of every good thing in your life and about your life. Give it all to him. This is what they're doing 
day and night. And as the 24 elders are laying down their crowns, they're saying, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This is one more reminder that our God in all of his self-sufficiency, our God, as much as he is content in and of himself and needs nothing else, has yet chosen to give us life, to bring the world into being. And our proper response is to lay down our crowns and to sing to our God, you are the one who is worthy, not me. You are the one who is glorious, not me. You are the one who is powerful, not me. You're the one who's created all things, not me. And that all of my glory is borrowed glory. All of my holiness is borrowed holiness. Now, I understand that the self-esteem crowd is going to be upset about that. There are a lot of people who are going to be like, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to kill people's self-esteem, Brandon, because you're telling them that they're not worthy in and of themselves. They're not glorious in and of themselves. They're not beautiful in and of themselves. They're not enough. And I say, it is being loved by our God that makes us enough. It is being loved and accepted and taken in by our God who does not need us that makes us enough. Borrowed glory is the best kind of glory. Because if I have glory in myself, then I have to keep it up. If I have power and authority and, and all of those things in and of myself, then I'm the one who the buck stops with. I'm the one who has to maintain all of that. But if my glory is borrowed glory, if my beauty is borrowed beauty, if all that I have and all that I am is glorious and good because it is derived from the King of glory, the Lord of life, the one who made it all, the one who is love and goodness and peace and beauty in and of himself, then I don't have to maintain it. He gives it to me freely. I am more glorious in God's borrowed glory than I could ever be on my own. I am better when I am adopted as a child of God than I can be on my own. And the pressure's off. The pressure for me to maintain it, the pressure for me to build it up, the pressure for me to be something great because I have all this untapped potential in my life that I'm not living into, that just becomes legalism. That becomes a recipe for shame. Brandon, you're not doing enough. You're not working hard enough. You're not getting there. But if all that I have is a gift from my good God, and I can live and walk in the giftedness that God has given me, I don't have to build it and I don't have to maintain it, and the pressure is off. And I can just be. This is why God can tell us, just breathe. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am enough for you. Be still and know that I am the one who loves you. I am the one who defines you. I am the one who builds you up. It is my image in you that makes you worthy. It is my image in you that gives you glory. It is my image within you that builds you up and gives you this great potential. We pursue God and pursue his holiness because we know it's the only way to reach all of the great potential that he's given us. We pursue God and we seek his holiness because we know it is the only way to truly root ourselves and to give ourselves uh, an authority and a power and a glory that we couldn't build or earn on our own. And it's the only way to exercise that power and authority and glory in a way that is right and good because only God knows ultimately what is right and good for his creation and for his people. And so we lay our crowns down before him and we say, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are beautiful and my glory is borrowed. And that's why we gather here. 
That's why we come to this place to worship. That's why we gather with other followers of Jesus. When we gather here on a Sunday or, or any day of the week, when we gather together and we worship our God and we are in fellowship with one another, we are mirroring what is happening in heaven all the time. When we gather and we sing to our good and beautiful God, when we gaze upon him through the words of his scripture, when we walk through and rehearse the gospel, when we proclaim with our words and our actions, God, you are glorious, you are beautiful, we are mirroring what is happening in the very throne room of God, and we are displaying his glory to the world. When we come here together to worship our God, we ought to leave awestruck. We ought to leave in total wonder and awe of who our God is and of the glory that he has to display. We ought to come and gaze upon our God and leave totally overwhelmed by his presence. I used to be pretty, uh, I grew up in, in kind of sensational church, right? kind of sensational evangelical culture. Like, we wanted to have a feeling every Sunday. We wanted to come and, and have our feelings uplifted. And we wanted to come and, and just have a sense of, of beauty and of glory and of, of awe. And, and, and we wanted to have energy and we wanted to be excited about our God. And then I, I, that was good. And, but then I, I left there and I went and, and I began to pursue God with my mind and I started to reject that. And I thought, no, what we really need is a contemplative place to come and to pray and to be centered and to, to learn the, the doctrines and to learn the scripture and to, to feed our minds. And I began to reject the, the energy of the church of my youth. And yet when I look here at the throne room of God, I see the beautiful wedding of those two things. When I look here at the throne room of God, I see creatures and people who are just in awe of their God. They're feeling all the emotions. We've got thunder and lightning and energy and power radiating out from the throne of God. You've got all of the sensationalism that could ever be happening right here in the throne room of God. And yet you have a people who are submissive you have a people who are laying down their crowns, who are singing truths about God and, and who are knowing their God in their minds and in their hearts. And so I feel like the course of my life over the past decade and a half or so has been trying to find that place where we're feeding our minds with the words of God and we're feeding our minds with the scripture. But where also church ought to be the place where we come and we get excited and we stand in awe of our God and we feel all the feels and we feel all the emotions and we are in awe of our God because aesthetics matter, because beauty matters, because emotions matter, because energy and, and motivation matter. And that's the kind of culture I hope we're building where we're both coming and emotionally engaging with God and, and feeling him and knowing him and standing in awe of him and where we're learning and we're training our minds to love him well and to follow him. So that's, that's where we end today. That's where we come today, where we look upon the throne room of God and we're reminded that when we come to worship we come to mirror the throne room of God. We come to mirror heaven in what we do. And we're reminded that we can't do that alone. God himself surrounds himself with a multitude of creatures, with a multitude of people. We can't come on our own and worship God and mirror heaven. Yes, we should be worshiping God all the time with our lives, individually and corporately. 
But in the times that we get to come and to gather together and to really mirror the throne room of God, we're, we're living into this very image of Revelation 4. We are doing and rehearsing and practicing what is happening in the heavenlies all the time. And we're centering ourselves on God, not ourselves. We come here to remind ourselves that we are not the center of the universe, that God is. That we don't control all things, but God does. We come here to remind ourselves that we, in and of ourselves, are not all that awesome. But our God is. And he wants to share his awesomeness and glory with us. We come here to stand in awe and wonder and to be recharged so that as we walk out in the world, we can represent him fully and completely in all of his glory and holiness. Because our God is one who doesn't selfishly hold his glory to himself, but he shares it with his people and wants to show it forth through us. We have the distinct privilege of glorifying our God in everything that we do and allowing the purpose of our life to be his purpose, allowing the purpose of our life to follow him with everything that we are. That's why we gather here. And so I want to encourage you, don't forsake the gathering together. If you're with us online and it is safe for you to do so, I want to see you here. And I don't say that shamefully. I don't say that to put you down. But if, if you've been online and gotten comfortable with that, and so you're not coming back, not because you don't, not because it's unsafe for you to do so, but because you've just become comfortable with it, I want you to know, in all love, as your pastor, you need to be here. We need you here. You need us here. And to you who are here, thank you for being here. I pray that as we go forward, we would, we would grasp and we would hold on tight to the vision of the throne room of God and that we would remember what we do here mirrors the heavens, mirrors what's going on around God, and that he wants to invite us into his purpose and his plan. Let's pray. God, thank you for this throne room scene. Thank you that we get the privilege of engaging with it, of becoming a worshiper of you, that, that we get the privilege of mirroring what's happening in heaven, even here and now on the earth. God, I pray that you would move us Move us to, to love one another and love the gathering so much that we can't wait to be here together, that we can't wait to worship you together, to set our hearts and minds on you and be reminded of the awesomeness of our God and of the great privilege that it is to reflect your glory and beauty in the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.